You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story that you're about to hear, The Fake Epidemic, was released on June 11th of 2009, and I have to tell you, it's still among my favorites of all time. But the problem was that my field of study was geology in college, so I remember having to go to one of the biology teachers in the school where I worked for explanation of some of the terms. So hopefully I got most of the science correct. Anyway, let me cue the sound. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silman. Today's story is one that I call the fake epidemic. Not a real epidemic, but a fake epidemic. It's a story of how two Polish doctors outsmarted the Nazis and managed to save the lives of thousands. But before we get to that, let's start with today's question of the day. And my question for you today is actually quite straightforward. Here in the United States, we have numerous circulating coins, you know, the penny, the nickel, the dime, quarter, half dollar, silver dollar. And my question is, who is the first U.S. president ever to have his image on a circulating coin here in the United States? Again, we have the penny, the nickel, and so on. Who was the first person, the first U.S. president ever to have his image on a circulating coin? And I'll let you think about that for a little bit, and uh, I'll give you the answer at the end of this podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now for today's story, which I call the fake epidemic, and it truly is one of my favorite stories of all time. Now, you may have seen the uh, 1993 film Schindler's List, and I actually find it hard to believe that movie's that old already. But anyway, that movie will forever immortalize the heroic efforts of Oscar Schindler and how he managed to save the lives uh, you know, of more than a thousand Jews during World War II. Yet, there's a, another story, one that's far lesser known, that is credited with saving even more lives at the time. It's a story of deception and, and just pure, plain, sheer genius. It's just a fascinating, fascinating true story. And 
Even though I have Polish heritage, I know no Polish, so I apologize for anything I mispronounce, and I'm about to do it right now, because this story is really a story of two Polish doctors, and their names were Dr. Eugenius uh, Lazowski and Dr. Stanislav Matulowicz, and maybe I'm close enough, I hope I am. Anyway, it's a story of them and the fake epidemic that they created to trick the Nazis and save countless lives. Our story goes back to 1939, where a young man who, you know, whose name is forever lost history was on special leave from a Nazi work camp, and he desperately searched for a way to avoid being sent back, because he knew that if he went back, it meant definite slave labor and even probable death. But there were a few options open to anybody at this time. Basically, the only way to avoid these camps was one, you know, one, have a really, really serious disease where they didn't want to touch you, or two, commit suicide, and that wasn't an option for this man. And this is where Dr. Matulowicz enters the picture because he found the answer in a very insignificant soil microbe called Proteus OX19. And it may sound like it's out of a sci-fi movie, but it really is a soil microbe. And as insignificant as Proteus OX19 may seem, it has one highly critical detail. And that is that Proteus OX19 has the same antigen as the bacteria responsible for typhus. Now, what this means is that if you're exposed to Proteus OX19, the human body will produce the same exact antibody as it would have produced if it was exposed to typhus bacteria. And of course, you can see where this is going. Theoretically, if you get the same antibodies, then you should test positive for typhus on the typhus test, even though you don't have it. So Dr. Matulowicz wondered, could injecting this young man with the Proteus OX-19 cause him really to test positive for the typhus? I mean, theory is one thing, but uh, reality is another. So he decided to give it a try. What did he have to lose? I mean, this guy was going you know, back to a slave uh, labor camp and probably was going to die. So he injected the young man with the Proteus OX-19, uh, and his blood sample was sent to a German laboratory for testing. And in fact, it did come back uh, testing positive for typhus. And of course, the young man was not allowed to return to the camp. And we can assume, you know, his name is lost history, but we can assume that his life was spared. I should mention that a single case of typhus really was no laughing matter to the Germans at this time. Because during World War I, typhus actually caused more than 3 million deaths and just ravaged the troops on the Western Front. So they wanted to avoid this at all costs. Now, it wasn't known during World War I, but shortly after, it was determined that it was transmitted by lice, which is typically associated with poor living conditions like those found in the slums. And as hard as the Germans uh, uh, you know, tried to avoid it, it did make its way into the concentration camps because the conditions were very poor there also. And typhus wiped out a large number of people, including, uh, most famously, Anne Frank. Now that I've given you a little bit of background information on typhus, let's introduce the second person in our story, and that is Dr. Lazowski, who was uh, at the time very active in the Polish underground resistance. And being a doctor, he was able to uh, supply medical care, of course, supplies, and information to resistance members. He happened to live next to a Jewish ghetto in Poland, and even though uh, he knew this was punishable by death, he felt it was his moral obligation to help them when it was needed. So he devised a system where a piece of white cloth would be placed on his fence and that would tell him that he needed to provide some help to uh, someone in need. But the Germans were keeping very careful inventory of the medicines dispensed uh, and he had no choice, Lazowski had no choice but to fake the records. 
And the way he did this is that he lived fairly close to the town's railroad station. So he said the medicines were given to sick people who were passing through the town. Basically, a train would arrive, there's a sick person on it, he provides some care and medicine, and then they would leave. Therefore, uh, they really, it made it tough for the Nazis to keep track of the medicines. Almost from the moment that the Germans invaded Poland in 1939, they were rounding up the Polish men and women and either sending them, well, if you weren't Jewish, you were sent to a slave labor camp, and if you were Jewish, you were sent, and everybody knows this today, you were sent to a death camp. While these roundups continued, Dr. Matulis just happened to mention his typhus deception with the young man to Dr. Lazowski, and almost instantly, Dr. Lazowski had a brilliant proposal. He wondered what would happen if they could create a typhus epidemic in the town. Of course, it would be incredibly risky, and if anyone found out, these guys would be put to death. But just think about how many lives they could save. So the two men secretly put together their plan to create a pseudo-epidemic. The doctors knew perfectly well that they couldn't inject Jews with the Proteus OX-19, since these were people already headed you know, for the death camps. If there was an epidemic suspected, the Germans would just kill them on the spot, and that would be the end of the epidemic. Instead, the doctors chose to inject the killed bacteria into any non-Jewish patient that suffered from a fever or other you know, typhus-like symptoms. You came to them, and you had those symptoms. You got the shot. Now, to avoid being caught, they referred many of the patients on to other doctors who were not in on the scheme. Of course, then those blood samples would go off to the state labs, and they would test positive for the typhus, but it wouldn't be traced back to the two doctors. So did it work? You bet it did. The doctors actually started the deception very slowly, but by the time it reached, you know, so-called epidemic proportions several months later, the Germans quarantined 12 villages in the area, which was home to some 8,000 people, and the deportation of the workers came to a halt. The German troops stayed away until the end of the war. But by late 1943, word started to trickle back to the Germans that no one was dying from this typhus epidemic. So the local Gestapo notified health authorities and they sent in an investigative team. The investigative team consisted of an elderly doctor and his two young assistants. While the elderly doctor stayed behind drinking vodka with Lazowski, the two assistants were taken out to see staged patients. Basically, they were seeing those living in the worst conditions with the worst symptoms and being, you know, being knowledgeable of typhus and what could happen from it. They were very, very fearful of disease. So they made a quick examination and concluded that the typhus epidemic was real. So the two doctors were off the hook, at least for now. But near the end of the war, a German soldier that was treated by Lazowski tipped him off that the Germans knew about him helping the Jews in the ghetto and that he was on the Gestapo hit list. Lazowski knew that he had no choice but to get out of there, so he escaped with his wife and his daughter to go live in Warsaw. And they stayed in communist Poland until moving to Chicago in 1958. And believe it or not, he kept quiet, didn't even tell his wife about his fake epidemic until he came to the U.S. Sadly, he died on December 16, 2006 at age 92. I had a little bit more difficult time finding information on what happened to Dr. Matulowicz. I do know that he moved to Zaire and became a professor of radiology, and the last I read, he was retired and living back in Poland. I have also read that there's a documentary being made on this fake epidemic, and it should be out in a year or so. 
Now, in the end, these two men used their brains over weapons to quietly save over 8,000 people from almost certain death. These are true heroes in my book. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Now a message for every woman and girl in America from an authority on beauty long known as one of the five most experienced beauty experts in America, Beatrice de Silvara. When you hear your husband praise the beauty of another woman's complexion, doesn't it sometimes make you wonder what he thinks of your skin? If you've been even slightly careless, let your skin become drab-looking. Perhaps you have good reason to wonder. But listen closely. For I want to tell you of a remarkable method of daily skin care that thousands of women are using with wonderful results. This way is based on two unique and utterly delightful face creams. Philips Milk and Magnesia Cleansing Cream and Philips Milk and Magnesia Skin Cream. These are the only face creams made from genuine Philips Milk and Magnesia. And here's how you use these special creams. First, apply the cleansing cream to your face. It liquefies instantly, floats away surface dirt. Leaves your skin softer, cleaner, smoother. And then, as an exquisitely dainty and delicate powder base, use Philips Milk and Magnesia Skin Cream. It helps neutralize any excess fatty acid accumulations in the outer pore openings. Removes oily shine due to excess accumulated oil on the skin. Softens dry roughness and even seems to smooth away those tiny lines. The fact is, thousands of women use Philips Skin Cream as a night cream so that it can have its full neutralizing and softening effect. You can get Philips Milk and Magnesia Skin Cream and Philips Milk and Magnesia Cleansing Cream at any drugstore or cosmetic counter. They come in 10 and 60 cent jars. Start using these delightful and effective beauty creams today. You really have to wonder what the guys in marketing were thinking when they decided to name a line of facial creams after a very popular laxative. It just makes no sense to me. Surprisingly, these facial creams were quite popular in the 1930s and 1940s, and that was mainly due to the recommendation of Beatrice de Silvera, the woman you heard talking in the commercials. De Silvera advised many Hollywood actresses at the time on beauty, and therefore a 15-minute show called How to Be Charming was created for radio, and uh, De Silvera offered beauty tips to women, but the real purpose of the show was to sell the two products you heard advertised. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. Our first little tidbit goes back to October of 1927 where a woman named Jean Sagerman, who lived in the Bronx in New York City, had a man visit her apartment. 
Now, the man claimed to be a doctor and said that her husband had arranged for him to visit the apartment to give her a physical examination. So she agreed. After the examination took place, he said the following. This is in quotes. Your circulation is very poor. I'm afraid you'll have to take an extra hot bath before I can make a thoroughly satisfactory examination. And that's the end of the quote. Anyway, she hid her engagement ring and the money that she had under her pillow. But when she came out of the bath, the money, the ring, and of course the doctor were long gone. She, of course, complained to the police. The story was publicized, and then other women admitted that he had done the same to them. Our next little tidbit goes back to October 1929, just a few days before the great stock market crash, and it involves a man named Herbert L. Pye. Now, back in 1884, Pye was a young lad of just 16 years old, and he saw a boat capsize in the Casco Bay, which is located in the Gulf of Maine. Anyway, he saw a man floundering in the water, and he dived in, and he rescued a guy named George Rice, who lived in Manhattan. Rice assured Pye that he would never, ever forget what he had done for him. And then the years go by, 45 years to be precise, and Rice passes on. Well, in that time, Rice became a very, very wealthy soap manufacturer and willed his entire estate of $1.5 million to Pi, who is now age 61. But no one knew where Pi was, so it took a while, you know, a month or so, and the newsmen finally tracked him down. And it turns out he did not have the same wealth that uh, Rice had accumulated. In fact, he was an ash man. He was a person who would go into people's homes because back then people used coal and wood and other uh, fuels to burn to heat their homes. So he would go into their homes, collect the ashes, load it onto his wagon, and take it uh, to be dumped. But believe it or not, he was not happy to hear that he was now a millionaire. Pi realized that if all the people in his community realized that he was a very, very wealthy man, they would send their ash business to other ashmen and his business would be gone. He would be ruined. Not only that, he didn't know if he'd make a good millionaire or if, even if he'd wanted the money. I have a feeling, though, when the stock market crashed just a few days later, he may have been glad that he actually inherited that money. The last little tidbit uh, for today goes back to September of 1939 and involves two brothers, twins in fact, Father Francis Canoy and Father Louis Canoy, who happened to be ordained together. And they made the promise that someday they would get to teach in the same school together. Now Francis was assigned to a school in Denver, Colorado, and Louis was assigned to a school in Kansas City, Missouri. So there were many miles between them. Finally, Francis got his wish and he was transferred to Kansas City to be with his brother. But when he got there, he found out his brother had the same exact idea and was transferred to Denver, probably to fill his own brother's position. So in the end, they ended up switching positions and didn't get to teach in the same school. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I asked who was the first president, the first U.S. president, to appear on a circulating coin. And it turns out it's Abraham Lincoln. His face, his portrait appeared on the 1909 penny. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the fake epidemic. It's one of my favorite stories, along with the question of the day on the first U.S. president to appear in a circulating coin, the Milk of Magnesia facial cream retro sponsor, which I find kind of odd, and of course, the news of the weird past. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. 
If for some crazy reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website at uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. Lastly, I would appreciate if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Some people have done so, and other people have actually emailed me. Uh, generally just ask me to crank out more of these stories, and I must apologize for my slowness at posting these. The real problem is that I'm working two full-time jobs. On a typical weekday, I get up at 4, and I work all the way until 10 p.m. before I go to bed and get up at 4 a.m. the next morning. It doesn't leave a lot of time to research these, write the stories, and, of course, uh, record them. So thanks for being patient. Uh, I hope to get a new one posted in a few weeks, and thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.